Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Bustle Huddle. I'm your host, Caitlin Aber. For the next two episodes, we're going to explore the concept of motherhood, why we choose to become mothers, the lies that women are told about fertility, the actual process of having children, and all the ups, downs, challenges, and profound moments along the way. Molly Webster, the host of Radio Lab Presents Gonads, will join us to discuss the science behind her series and what actually happens to a woman's ovaries when she turns 35. If you're a sperm or an egg, if you're a testis or an ovary, you want to make it in this world. We'll also be chatting with Elizabeth Katkin, the author of Conceivability, about her firsthand experience with IVF and fertility treatments around the world. You know those internet ads that go, the one thing your doctor doesn't want you to know? Yep, that's this interview in a nutshell. Without a good egg, there's no embryo, there's no baby. And so their exact words were, it's time to quit. And finally, we're joined by Alyssa Himmel, a 30-year-old woman in Ohio who's been documenting her journey to have a child for Romper's series on fertility, aptly named Trying. A whole eight-week ordeal, countless blood draws, two trips to the ER. All right, let's be real. Motherhood is a tricky subject for millennial women. According to recent studies, young women are either having children much later in life than previous generations, or they are opting out of it entirely. There's endless factors for this, and we'll get into some of them in our discussions later. But this wouldn't be the bustle huddle if I didn't reveal something about myself first. Being indecisive about motherhood is something I can totally relate to. Demographically speaking, I'm married, 34 years old, in a two-income household in New York City, which is one of the few places in the country that mandates a parental leave policy. I'm also healthy, relatively financially stable, and have managed to keep a cat alive for over a decade. If I wanted to have kids, now would probably be the right time to do it. And yet, I still just don't know. I see all the amazing moms in my life and recognize how hard they work and how much they love and enjoy their kids, but I can't be sure that would be my experience. I like my life as it is, and I would feel bad about having a kid if I wasn't 100% sure about it. Then again, I'm 34. If I'm not sure now, will I ever be? And how soon do I have to decide? I am really excited about our first guest. The Bustle Huddle team dropped by the Radiolab studio to chat with journalist Molly Webster about the myth of the cliff, the idea that women have a major drop in fertility after age 35. Gonads. <laughs> Ray on Radiolab presents gonads. Which yeah. is a really fun word that I don't think I get to say enough. That is one of the reasons we have declared it as the name. It of just our... sounds like something that like a kid in an 80s movie would make fun of another kid. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. I think that's what I was so surprised about is like to me, it just has like this sort of like boy humor jokes yeah. or like uh, you're just like teasing someone or you just think balls. Yeah. Uh, but uh, then I was talking to all these scientists and they were they were gonadding it up. <laughs> straight face and I realized oh my god this is actually a science word that culture has just like appropriated and just destroyed and so we're just gonna take it back 
which I guess you would say is a deep dive into human reproduction. Yeah, it's uh, it's sort of like a magic school bus meets Peter Jackson epic <laughs> of, of just like what's happening underneath the surface in our biology. And uh, it sort of gets at, at, at some interesting ideas and questions about identity and uh, sort of how biology shapes us and drives us. Cool. And so today we're talking about the cliff. The cliff. I think that's something women, well, maybe throughout their entire lives, but I know that there's a certain age that a lot of women have in their heads for when they should be married by, when they should have kids by, and then when things are going to start getting like extremely hard oh, yeah. and dangerous. So when I was originally conceptualizing what gonads could be, it really was a broad kind of dive into just the land of reproduction, of human reproduction. And like while diving into that land, I found that I was having multiple conversations with people where they brought up the age of 35 as a concerning point in reproduction. And for women, um, I kept hearing this phrase like reproductive cliff. And for men, there was a feeling of just like, if I'm an older guy and I do want to have kids, does that mean I have to only date people like under 35? Then I thought, why is everyone repeating this? And then I started wondering, like, is there any truth to a concern around the age of 35. And then I realized like I was sort of about to turn 35. And then I started wondering, like just for my own like interest, I was like, should I be more worried? You know? I know you've done a lot of research and you have found some very, I would say, interesting science behind this number um, and where it came from. Well, it's interesting. So the first, so, so one of the things I was trying to figure out was like how much people had actually studied fertility and age, because on the grand scheme of thing, it, it does make sense that as I approach menopause, right, which has to happen at some point and, and is sort of said to be like average age of 50, like that some change would occur. And whether that change is totally locked into your 30s or whether it starts happening in your 20s and and just how abrupt that change is was sort of what I was interested in. So first I wanted to find out like what what the slope of the change looked like. Was it indeed a cliff or was it something else like a, a bunny slope perhaps, or just like a gentle something. And then I was also trying to figure out like, what was the data out there? So like, for one of the studies that has a cliff that people reference often, it was from French peasants. This is a population that doesn't even have vaccinations or any medical system or like hygiene, you know, like hypothesis kind of built into their daily lives. And so it's not really a great comparison point. But one of the reasons that people use data like that is because they're trying to understand what they call natural fertility populations, populations that have been untouched by birth control. And you can debate all you want what like natural means in that sentence. But yeah, and then in some of the other cliffs are the data actually comes from fertility clinics, which is sort of a self-selected population. If you're getting data on fertility from people who are having trouble with fertility, the numbers are going to be skewed. Yeah, the um, answer's already there. Yeah, so that was one of the things we we bumped into. It was like, oh, okay, like first we can just tell people that the cliffs that are out there are not based on material you want to trust. And then the question was, like, what studies have been done? Like, what is there any actual studies? One of the doctors I talked to was like, Nothing in biology, like nothing in it is that abrupt. Like you're never really going to get a cliff mm -hmm. in 
in like evolution. Like you're just not going to get a cliff unless there's some like abrupt thing that gets thrown into the system. And the question, I guess, is if there's no um, fertility is just the ability to get pregnant. But there's mm-hmm. also studies or there's maybe rumors or pressure that says, well, like the idea of having a healthy pregnancy or having a child that's born without any major issues, those those mm-hmm. increase as you get older as well. Is yeah, that so something that to be concerned about? Yeah, so that is pretty clearly understood. Like I think the biggest thing that walks into the room is Down syndrome. Sort of the numbers that are often quoted was that you have a one in 350 chance of having a baby with Down syndrome in your 30s. And then if you're 45, it's like one in 30. So this, like you said, is something you started thinking about as you were approaching your 35th birthday. And something you've said is like, it's not so much that you were sure about wanting to have kids, but you wanted to have the option, yeah. like the option being taken away. And just a glutton for options. <laughs> I, yeah. think, I think as we all should be, probably. <laughs> um, has doing this research changed or um, evolved or done anything to your perspective on having kids? Well, it's interesting because, like I said, I wasn't actually nervous about it going to 35, but I did have a wondering of, should I be taking this more seriously? And really... If there's an age I'm going to worry at, like, what is that age? I don't feel more concerned. I don't feel more or less concerned. I'm actually pretty neutral on that. I feel like I've just I I acknowledge that it should be an active thing I'm thinking about. I will say that doing the research does not make me feel nervous about 35. It doesn't make me feel nervous about 36. It does not make me feel nervous about 37. It does not make me feel nervous about 38. It does make me think that if I was like 39 or 40, that I would have to really face up to the fact that there's a good likelihood that I might not have kids. I think for a lot of women also, 35 comes kind of fast or all of a sudden they are like, oh no, this is happening. And the things I want to have in place before I have a kid Mm. might not be there yet. So egg freezing has become... Mm -hmm giant at this point. Yeah. And it's something I think a lot of women think about partly because it's marketed to them so strongly. So strongly. Um, and what are your, yeah, what have you come up with? I've just, I've heard about like 20 year olds, 19 year olds getting it offered to them as like a graduation present, like, uh, or, or folks going to college campuses with like egg freezing brochures. And one of the doctors I talked to, like a fertility specialist, was like, if you're 20 and you're thinking about freezing your eggs, you're probably like so on the fact that you like want to have a kid that you will figure out a way to have a kid naturally. And it's, you know, a lot of people talk, said to me, like egg freezing, even, and these are fertility doctors who are in the biz, were like, egg freezing, I wouldn't even like think about until it's like, you know, maybe you're 30 and you're like, you know what, I don't know if I'm going to have a partner in the next... So, however many years or if I'm going to have that partner and execute on having a child, you know, and or what if I want multiple kids? You know, that's that's also part of the timeline is that you could probably very well have a baby when you're 41, but that might be the only baby you have. And if you want to have siblings, you know, that's something else to consider in all of this timeline stuff. But, yeah, the egg freezing is a big, a big business for sure. Okay, so 19, obviously, is maybe too early to yeah. be stressed about this. 32, 33, is if, if you're not where you are, where you want to be or where you envision yourself. That's generally when, like, fertility doctors said 
that is when I would advise someone to start thinking about egg freezing. And that's not because your, you know, your eggs are less good. It's just that you only have so many left of them before menopause. Well, that, that research is really interesting. So you do have less and less eggs every year, but there's a lot of research that does show that the eggs that you ovulate and drop later in life are not as, quote unquote, good as the ones earlier. Um, and no one really understands that a ton. There's a lot of different theories about why that might happen. So there is evidence that is actually why you would start to see increases in Down syndrome and stuff, because when the egg and the sperm combine, if it's not as healthy an egg as possible or as healthy a sperm, then you'll start seeing chromosome changes. And it also happens with sperm, like like sort of the age is connected with with the breaking down of the health of those two parts. Gotcha. Now I'm scared. Don't don't <laughs> it's don't be scared because it's a natural process that's been going on for Yeah. For at, at uh, six months from thirty five. There's only so much <laughs> I can do at this point. It's not like I'll just say it it's not like an abrupt one day your eggs are bad. It's just it's just recognize that 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 um it seems that the ones you drop when you're forty are different than the ones you drop when you're twenty. So You've been working on this project for a while now. Like nine, like nine months, actually, <laughs> which is funny. Uh, yeah. Is there anything that you that really surprised you? I did have an interesting conversation with one of the female scientists who made egg freezing a thing um, because it's very hard to freeze an egg, and they they didn't start doing it consistently till the late nineties not even consistent. It wasn't consistent until the early aughts. That's like we're, why we're all talking about this now. But one of the female researchers who who was at the forefront of figuring this out, I had a phone conversation with her and I was talking to her about how she felt about how egg freezing was being utilized now. Because the original purpose of egg freezing, right, is in fertility preservation for, for women who are sick, right? So cancer treatments and things like that. And now it's being used sort of, there's this like lifestyle idea of, of freezing eggs. And she was actually upset by that. She was just like, women do all of this stuff and they all, all they get out of it is like some eggs in the freezer. Like we should actually set up a lifestyle, a, a working lifestyle, like a daily lifestyle for women. So they're able to have kids in their 20s when they can and they're not worried about their fertility and they could still have amazing careers and have families. So she was actually feeling like egg freezing being used as a lifestyle thing was was like an ins a further enslavement of women in this way that I found really interesting because I think it's been branded as like um a freedom as a as a freeing as a as a long-term option and and she was also saying, you know, eggs in a freezer are still not a 100% chance that you're going to have a kid. And the idea that that's being kind of offered as that was frustrating to her. So tell me more about gonads. Do you say it funny every time? I would have gonads. to. <laughs> well, it's funny. It's funny. I had to practice for like a month because I would be like, okay, I think we're going to call this series like, I don't know, like gonads, you know, but if you don't say it with conviction, you've lost everybody. <laughs> and then I'm like, gonads, we're going to call it gonads. Some of the stuff we dive into is in freezing land, we actually go beyond egg freezing and we're looking at uh, freezing ovaries and actually preserving the, the factory that makes all the eggs and the benefits of that, if it's beneficial, how people are using it. So that 
is bananas cool. Ovaries really want to survive. That was like, that's sort of one of the things that my takeaways here is, is if you're a sperm or an egg, if you're a testis or an ovary, you want to make it in this world because you want to make more of yourself. You have a very grand mission and whether or not they know that they have that mission, um, they are resilient organs. You can say all the stuff about resiliency, but gonads definitely want to survive. They are intent on making more of us. Like whether or not I want to engage with that as a human being, there's an underlying movement to make more human beings, like just sort of as a species. So Molly, I want to thank you so much for coming on the Bustle Huddle and talking about this. Thank you, Caitlin. Once again, listen to Radiolab Presents Gonads. The five-episode series is now available wherever you listen to podcasts. Given what Molly learned about our body's ability to conceive and have a healthy child after 35, we wanted to talk to someone who has actually tried it. And by tried it, we're talking over $200,000, nine years of her life, and six countries worth of trying. Elizabeth Katkin, author of Conceivability, What I Learned Exploring the Frontiers of Fertility, embarked on an incredibly extensive fertility journey in her late 30s and early 40s. Along the way, she made some hopeful discoveries that she's now sharing with the world. Elizabeth hopped on the phone with Bustle's Director of Features and Brand Initiatives, Margaret Wheeler-Johnson, to discuss how one Russian fertility doctor changed her entire view of her fertility journey. Can you summarize all of the things that you went through to have your two children? Uh, yes. So uh, I started out just trying the good old-fashioned way, and um, then we progressed to IUI, which is uh, more commonly known as artificial insemination. They get totals about six insemination attempts. And then we moved from insemination into IVF. We did IVF eight times. We're both American, but we were living in London. So we tried clinics in London and clinics here. We tried IVF with something called ICSI, which is when they inject the egg directly with the sperm to increase the fertilization rate. And that didn't have much impact. We tried IVF with something called pre-implantation genetic testing, where they test the quality of the embryos. We eventually turned to a surrogate, and we also tried, although didn't rely on egg donation. So we've pretty much run the gamut of almost everything that you could try other than a sperm donor. And how did you ultimately have your two children? We ultimately had our two children through IVF with genetic testing, which I feel really strongly is is one of the main reasons we have our children. Our daughter, who we had first, we had through IVF through a pretty conventional IVF method in New York. And our son we had after, you know, several years more of failed attempts at a clinic in Russia using a a different minimally invasive protocol. I am fascinated by the experience you had in Moscow and the differing approach to fertility treatment outside of the U.S. that you describe. Just tell us briefly what happened and what that approach entails. In all the cycles I'd had, I'd always had an abundance of eggs. I'd go through the egg collection cycle, I'd take the hormones, and I'd have lots and lots of eggs. After our first child, when we did subsequent IVF cycles for a second, the number and and quality of my eggs dropped. And I spoke to a couple doctors and embryologists who told me that I was older, I had no good eggs left, and this was absolutely the end of the road. Without a good egg, there's no embryo, there's no baby. And so their exact words were, it's time to quit. And that was so definitive, we both really accepted that. Like, okay, it's over, we're not having a baby. 
through a series of random events and a friend of a friend, I, I learned about this clinic in Moscow and I, I really tracked the progress of a close friend of my friend's who'd had 13 miscarriages and went to this clinic and had twins. How old were you at this point and how old was this woman whose experience you were following? I was 40 and this woman was 43. Wow. She convinced me that I had to just give it that one last try. So when I went to Russia and I brought you know, a file, a medical file at this point that looked like the yellow pages. You know, I asked her if she was planning to use an egg donor. And when she said she wasn't, I said, I didn't really want to go through the time, money and pain for no good eggs again, because I'd been definitively told that I had no good eggs left. And she just, I can't even call it a laugh. She just kind of scoffed. She was scoffed and she started speaking in Russian. And the translator said, you have no idea if you have any good eggs left because all the hormones and drugs they had you on would have killed them. And is there evidence of that actually? So it's tricky. So what there is evidence of is that as a woman, you're born with a set number of eggs, which which is true. And that as you age, the quality declines till you have no eggs left and you hit menopause, but that nothing that you're doing can affect the quality of the eggs. What I was told in, in Russia is that there's a process of cell division we all probably learned and forgot from high school biology called meiosis, where the cells divide. They believe that, and it is actually proven, there's a lot of scientific research that a certain number of chromosome abnormalities happen during the last stage of meiosis, which is about six to 16 weeks before you ovulate, which means in the two, three, four months before you conceive is when a lot of the chromosomal abnormalities happen. And they strongly believe that environmental influences from what you eat and what you drink to toxins you put in your body and to the high levels of fertility drugs you're injecting into your bloodstream at that stage of IVF, that all of those things affect the egg quality and that the drugs they're giving can cause errors in meiosis. And what was the protocol? Because it wasn't what you get if you walk into one of the very well-known clinics here in New York City. So it was very similar, similar drugs, but much lower dosages. Before the cycle, she had me detox and she tested my blood periodically to make sure all the old hormones were out of my system. And then she insisted that I have no plastics whatsoever for the entire time I was prepping and the entire time I was doing IVF because they're seriously concerned about the effect of plastics. She doesn't let any of her international clients have bottled water, anything in Tupperware, anything in plastic. She wanted the minimal amount of drugs, minimal amount of stimulation to get four eggs in hopes that two would be normal. And I was freaking out, literally bona fide freaking out when she said she wanted to get four eggs because I thought, well, I've had 26 eggs and only had three normal. So what are you going to do with four eggs? And she was saying, no, 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 four eggs will produce, you know, two normals. And when we got eight eggs, I was ecstatic and she was devastated. The cycle when my son was conceived, I was 41. And all of our embryos tested normal after having no normals for the preceding two years. She said, why are you happy? I was like, eight eggs is great. She said, no, that means I gave you too much drugs. I could have given you even less. So her philosophy was just different. She's like, just get a few eggs and get healthy ones. The goal isn't dozens. The goal is one. And in terms of the no plastic protocol, the concern there is the impact of BPA on egg quality? Yeah, the impact there on BPA. And then when I asked her about the BPA-free plastic, she said that the problem is that in the U.S. and a number of other European countries, BPA became regulated after years and years of lobbying. But there are other equally bad and sometimes for fertility worse plastics that are not regulated. Did she mention any other environmental 
impacts on egg quality. What about air, water, building materials? The only one of those we actually talked about in detail was water, and that is a tricky one. There are just a lot of hormones in our water now. She's right, I'd say conscious of and open to the fact that everything in our environment potentially affects our egg quality. And that in the months leading up to a cycle, everything you do matters. She did strongly believe that eating the right things, taking care of yourself, getting enough sleep, eliminating environmental negatives, all of those things would help prime the environment for the egg that was about to undergo cell division and ovulate. I want to talk, since you were someone who went through so many years of treatments of various kinds, and there's such an emotional as well as financial toll, how do we make fertility treatment less bleak? I think part of what's bleak is so you start to feel sorry for yourself because it's just so hard. You know, you're like, you're injecting yourself with drugs and you have headaches and you're you're living your life on a schedule. You have to be home at 8 p.m. in a well-lit room where you can mix your shot. Doing the cycle in Russia, I didn't feel anything at all. The dosages were so low. And when I brought that up with the doctor, she laughed and said, well, you're not supposed to feel it. I mean, do you feel like crap every day the first two weeks of your menstrual cycle, like waiting to ovulate? You don't feel terrible half of your life. Your hormones aren't meant to be so pumped up that you actually feel bad. So I think they go a little bit hand in hand. I think like some treatment protocols itself wouldn't be so bleak. And I think people just talking more openly about it. I have been so stunned since telling people about the book, how about so many people I knew or people I worked with for a decade either had gone through it or were going through it and I didn't know because nobody talks about it. Why do we keep it so secret? I think a lot of women just feel bad about it. And I think that that's a really big shame. I think people... They feel like it's a failure in some way. I didn't talk about it for a long time either. I think professionally, people don't want to talk about it because they think, oh, if my employer just thinks all I care about is getting pregnant, my job's in jeopardy. I just think we talk about it so little. And so women feel really isolated. I think finding ways to talk about it and support each other would be a really really great step forward. You talk about how you surprised yourself with your sort of drive to see this through. I and mean, maybe I, I never realized until I started trying how much I wanted to have kids. I think I just assumed that it would happen, so I was always focused on other things. And it wasn't until I really couldn't have them that I realized how much I wanted to have them. And I think it was also, I mean, this is maybe the, the science geek part of me, but. I just couldn't understand why I couldn't, and it made me so frustrated and almost angry. The information was just so inadequate. No one could explain why. No one could give me an answer. They'd say, oh, this is a problem, but we fixed it. I think I just didn't believe them. I didn't believe I couldn't have kids. It fueled a drive I guess I didn't know I had. Thank you so much for your time, Liz. I learned so much reading this. Maybe some people who are on the front end of the journey will learn those things before they do it. Well, thank you. I really hope so. That's the goal. And I'm I'm really hoping it can help make other people's journey easier. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. For many women, the journey towards motherhood is filled with heartache. 
30-year-old writer Alyssa Himmel is one such woman. Along with contributing to Romper's latest issue, Trying, Alyssa spoke with Margaret and shared the story of her devastating eight-week miscarriage. Hi, I'm Alyssa Himmel, and I'm 30 years old. How long have you and your husband been married? Um, We'll be married three years in August. And did you both know that you wanted to have a child? Yes, we we knew we wanted to be parents. Um, As soon as I... We were married. I stopped taking birth control. We weren't trying immediately, but I knew I wanted to be a mom someday. Fast forward two years, we um, bought our first home and we thought, you know, we're settled in our careers. We have our first house. Now is as good a time as any to start a family. And we got pregnant pretty quickly and things ended as quickly as they started. So. The baby stopped developing at six weeks. I went in for an ultrasound at eight weeks. There was a heartbeat, but no growth. I came back um, a week and a half later at 10 weeks and there was no cardiac activity. My body hadn't like started the miscarrying process on its own yet, so I was prescribed Cytotech kind of to jumpstart things. And it wound up being from start to finish an eight week miscarriage. What? Um, Took a few months for my cycle to come back, and now we're we're at it again. My doctor was completely vague as to what my options were. She didn't really lay out them clearly, and I felt if there was like a natural way of doing things, I preferred that, and I could handle it. I didn't know the intensity. This was obviously our first child that we conceived, and I wasn't entirely educated on either process. So we thought the natural way would be best for us. And then that turned into a whole eight week ordeal, countless blood draws, two trips to the ER. It was horrible, grueling, painful, but we're ready to move forward. Miscarriage is one aspect of the, you know, trying to conceive process that people don't really talk about that much. What's your understanding of why that is? So miscarriage was always kind of a foreign concept to me. I kind of just thought it was something, you know, you see in the movies and it's like kind of a one and done thing, you move on. I didn't know a miscarriage, what that even was, a missed miscarriage. I I wasn't even familiar with the term. People just often don't like discussing the ugly and negative things in life. It kind of has motivated me to be so open and transparent about this process because when I was going through it, I was seeking um, support and advice, even information from random strangers on blogs and whatever I could find um, online through my own research. So. It's infuriating that it's not discussed. Yeah, there's not a lot of information and you are sort of at the mercy of what your doctor decides to tell you. When we met, you talked a little bit about how different this experience is for you versus your husband. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes, I don't think he'll ever fully get what I went through. It was a very lonely feeling. Um, He was so supportive and listens to me constantly and uh, my concerns, my fears, he's always there for me. Um, But having gone through that, it's very isolating. There's just a lot of components to it, emotional, physical, um, a lot of waiting involved. It's not just a quick decision, it's over with. 
it takes a lot of healing and time and I I don't think he fully got that. He can escape to work and forget about it, but when it's happening inside your body and any little pain or flinch, you're reminded of what's happening. You can't really escape it. It's, it's there and I feel like it's always going to be there. Even hopefully one day when we do have children, I'll still be reminded of it, not necessarily, it won't be as consuming as it is now, being so fresh, but it'll always be a part of me. That's, that's for sure. Yeah. So now that you are ready to start again, how are you feeling about that? Given the ordeal that you've been through in the last eight weeks? Definitely terrified, but also I'm very, I like to keep things moving. I don't really sit and dwell about the negative. That's not going to get me anywhere. Right when we found out that we were going to miscarry, I had this overwhelming sense to start over, to just try again as soon as I could. So yeah, I'm, I'm ready, all in. As all of our guests explained, so many women struggle with fertility and pregnancy. We're so honored to be trusted to share these important stories, and we want to make sure you know you're not alone. You can find Alyssa's trying story, along with many others, at romper.com forward slash trying. So that's it for today's show. Many thanks to our guests and our friends at Radiolab for helping us put this episode together. Next week, we're continuing the discussion with part two of the story, what actually happens when you become a mom. This is the part I'm afraid of. No, be careful. Good night, nobody. If you liked what you heard today, please leave us a review on iTunes. You should also join the Bustle Huddle Facebook group to continue the conversation. I know you guys have a lot of opinions about motherhood, and I want to hear all of them. The Bustle Huddle is produced by Julia Shu, Michaela Heck, and Anna Parsons. I'm your host, Caitlin Abbott, and I will see you next week.